Tonight's passage comes from Revelations 3, verse 7 to 13. I'll give you a minute to get it up. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia I write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I should have led at the very beginning of the service with who I am. So, hello, my name is Lachlan. I am the youth pastor here at Nawe Baptist Church. Um, it's been my real pleasure to serve as youth pastor here for this year. Um, and I'm looking forward to what could happen next year, where we get to hopefully run more things in person than we did this year. Now, it's my understanding that it is report season at school at the moment. So, all the youth here should have received your report or will very soon receive your report. Is that right? Who has received their report so far? A few. So it's three of you. The rest of you are sitting, waiting for your reports to arrive. Now, don't know about you, but there's a lot of different types of reports you can get. Um, some really, really, really positive, others far less so. Um, and even in this room, there's probably a variety of reports that different youth here will get. Now, there's also a great variety in my own family over what our report cards looked like. Whenever my sister got her report card, it always said something along the lines of, Alicia is very intelligent, but talks way too much. Now, you see, my brother and I, when my sister first started high school, got very embarrassed, because from the other end of the school, we would hear a teacher yell, Alicia Miller, stop talking, which was obviously very, very embarrassing for Rowan and I, who just kept our heads down. Now, my brother, I actually don't remember what sort of report cards he got, but he was a middle child, so that's pretty much to be expected there. <laughs> and me, as the eldest, I always got a glowing report card, obviously. Always really, really positive things. Um, to prove that to you, because there's no way you believe that, I have a copy of my Year 12 report right here, and I thought I would read little bits of it to you. Uh, the principal writes, Lachlan is an impressive young man. He has other things, but I'll just read that bit. <laughs> Uh, my maths teacher said this, Lachlan has been a pleasure to teach as his enjoyment of mathematics has visibly grown. I fooled her. And then this is, this is my favourite one. This is my music teacher. Uh, the grammar's not great, but that's okay. He's a music teacher. Uh, Lachlan has, ma has made an invaluable contribution to the musical life of the school. As such, he has developed skills which have placed him in an enviable position amongst his peers. He has been an asset to the class and an absolute delight to teach. Now, I don't know about you, but that was probably pretty boring for you to hear. What you really wanted to hear there was, 
an insight into high school Lachlan, maybe a reference or two to the time that he set a handball on fire and played flaming handball. However, that's not what is here. What is here is some really nice comments about me. And so while you're disappointed to hear this quite positive report card, I was stoked. I was stoked because this shows that I had worked hard for a year and it had paid off. Now, in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation that we've been looking at over the past few weeks here at Night Church, Jesus himself has been giving a series of report cards to the different churches in Asia Minor. And most, up until this point, have been very, very negative. The church in Ephesus has forgotten how to love and is at risk of being expelled. The churches in Pergamum and Thyatira are trusting in poor tutors who are teaching them lies. And the church in Sardis has started all of their work for the semester, but hasn't finished any of it yet. However, tonight as we come to the church in Philadelphia, we see a very different story. Philadelphia is not like the other churches we've just looked at, because they have received high praise and high marks, which, while being maybe a little bit boring for us to read about, they would have been stoked to actually receive this letter from Jesus, because all of their great work, all of their enduring through persecution had paid off. Now, a positive report card obviously will build the student up, make them feel pretty good about themselves, but it should also encourage them to keep going with that exact same work ethic into the next year. You see, at school, even if you get an amazing report card as they arrive, next year will hold new content and new challenges. So if you get a positive report card, something your teachers will be trying to do will be to encourage you to keep going. And so that is the purpose of this letter right here, to encourage the Philadelphians who have endured in their faith to keep going. They are encouraged that as they go into new challenges, they have the right work ethic, they just need to stick to it. And Jesus makes them several promises throughout this passage to encourage them to keep going at it the same way they have been. So, while a positive report card can be a little bit boring for the reader, what we're going to do tonight is actually learn from a student at the top of their class. We're going to learn from this church who is doing great things. But before I go any further, I'm going to do something that maybe many of you do before you receive your report card, and I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, as we look at your word tonight, I pray that you would open our hearts and open our ears to understand what you are teaching us. Amen. Now, I like to have lots and lots of structure. So I've divided this sermon slash the passage into four parts. First, we're going to look at the destination. Let's learn about the city of Philadelphia. Secondly, we're going to look at commendation. We're going to see why has this church done so well. Then we're going to look, number three, at the promises that Jesus makes to this church. And fourth and finally, exhortation, we're going to see how Jesus wraps up the letter. So let's dive in to destination in verse 7. Let me reread verse 7 for us. To the church of the angel, sorry, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. Now, when I first read this verse, I had three questions. Who is the angel of the church? What is the city of Philadelphia like? And what is the key of David? Now, that first question is actually quite easy. Um, the angel of the church is just like a personification of the church. Now, for those who are going to get good English marks, you already know what that means. For those who aren't going to get good English marks, firstly, I'm sorry. Secondly, 
This is just kind of a fancy or more fun way of saying to the church in Philadelphia. So my second question, however, involves a little bit more digging. The city of Philadelphia is not located in Pennsylvania in the US and home to the Fresh Prince. Oh, I got a laugh. I was concerned that reference was way too dated. So I apologize for how bad that reference was. Instead, Philadelphia is located in Turkey. So if you look at the map on the screen, you'll see where Philadelphia is, it's number six on the list of numbers, compared to the other churches that we've looked at in this series so far. Now, Philadelphia was actually a really rich, a really prosperous city, and there was two main reasons for all its wealth. The first is that all the local highways in the area kind of converged on Philadelphia. In my mind, it's a bit like Berry down south before they built the bypass. All the main roads kind of converged and go through it. So in the ancient world, if you were going to go anywhere in Turkey, you would go via Philadelphia and probably stop off for some donuts on the way. The second reason Philadelphia was quite prosperous, quite rich, is because just outside the city walls was a really fertile valley where they kind of filled every spare inch with grapes and vines. Now, because of all these grapes, which was turned into wine, but we won't tell the youth that, the local people actually spent lots of time worshipping the god Dionysus, who was the Greek god of wine and merriment. He sounds like a pretty fun guy. The city was also really religious in other ways, though. There was a temple to Zeus, to Hestia, to the Roman emperor, who they worshipped like a god, and even a Jewish synagogue, all located within that city. So it was quite a religious city. However, despite all these positives, there were some bad reasons or bad things about living in Philadelphia. Uh, the first is that it was, was and is very prone to earthquakes. Um, one ancient historian actually wrote this. The walls never cease being cracked and different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. That is why the actual town has few inhabitants, but the majority live as farmers in the countryside as they have fertile land. Now, this proneness to earthquakes will actually come up a little bit later in the letter, so stay tuned. So that is the city of Philadelphia. That is what we sort of know about this city, that Jesus is writing a letter to the church that lives in that city. My third question, if you remember, was what is the key of David? Now, if you've been coming to 6pm church for the last few weeks and hearing sermons about the other letters in the book of Revelation, you would have learnt by now that Jesus is always the one writing these letters. And so, when it says, he who holds the key of David, it's talking about Jesus there. It is Jesus who is holding this key. It is Jesus who is holy and true. But what does that mean? You might have seen in movies or read in a book when someone is given the key to the city. It's normally because they did something really, really heroic. This effectively goes back to medieval times where a really well-known, respected person would be given a key to the gates of the city. And what that meant is they could come and go as they please out of that city. Now, when we actually look at Isaiah 22:22, we find out that the key of David is sort of really similar to this concept that we've kind of kept going through the ages. You see, whoever has the key of David has authority over David's kingdom which is Israel, and thus has total authority over who can enter and who can't enter this kingdom. Now, when I first joined the church, they gave me a master key, which was pretty great. Um, it opens almost everything except the cleaning cupboard, which I took as a sign from God. <laughs> now, what this key effectively means is that I have the power on a Friday night to let people into youth 
or not let them leave. I have the power to let them enter or not let them enter. This is sort of what this key means. However, the key of David, unlike my master key, is one of a kind. Lots of people in this church have this master key. However, only Jesus has the key of David. And the passage says that whatever he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Now, I'm going to admit something to you all. Whenever I go to my fiance Emily's house for lunch, and we decide just to have something simple like a Vegemite sandwich, when she's not looking, I tighten the jar of Vegemite as hard as I can. That way, she can't open it and has to hand it to me and go, can you please open this? Which obviously makes me feel really, really good. Now, this passage is not saying what Jesus opens or closes is really, really hard to do the opposite to. It's not like the jar of Vegemite. Instead, what Jesus opens, no one can close. And what he closes, if he closes that Vegemite, no one can open it. This means he has total authority. And Jesus is saying, as the one with total authority, he is writing this letter to this church, which means we should sit there and sit up a bit straighter and pay attention to what Jesus, with total authority, is about to say to these people. So, let's see what he is saying to these people. What is the commendation that he's going to give to them? I'm going to reread verse 8 for us. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, as we just learnt, Jesus has the authority to open and close doors. But in this context, to the Church of Philadelphia, what does that even mean? Now, in other parts of the Bible, like the Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians that we just finished looking at at youth, when he uses the phrase, open or shut doors, he's talking about ministry opportunities. However, I don't think that's what's going on here in Revelation. Instead, when I think what I think is happening here, when Jesus talks about open and shut doors, is entrance or shutting out of God's very kingdom. So what he's doing here is he's saying he's placed an open door into God's kingdom, into fellowship with God in front of the Philadelphian church. Jesus is inviting them into community with him. He's inviting them to have salvation and no one can shut that door. No one can take that away from the church in Philadelphia. Now, one of the reasons he's made that offer is because the Philadelphians have kept Jesus' commands and not denied his name despite persecution. This is amazing. This is a really, really excellent church to emulate. Now, there is the slight caveat that they have little strength. However, most biblical interpreters I read said that that means they were a small community. They weren't big and flashy. They were small and faithful. About 15 years after this letter was written to the church, Another Christian called Ignatius actually wrote a letter to this exact same church. And this is what he said in his letter to this church. Keep yourselves from those evil plants with G which Jesus Christ does not tend, because they are not the planting of the Father. Not that I have found any division among you, but only exceeding purity. For as many of you who are of God and of Jesus are also united. You see, while Philadelphia was a small church, they were united in the gospel. They were holding fast to Jesus despite the persecution being thrown at them. And this is worthy of praise and commendation from Jesus himself. I don't know about you, but if, 
if Nawi was going to receive a letter from Jesus, I really hope that he would say something similar. And that leads us into the promises Jesus makes to this church. Once again, I'm going to read it for us. I will make those who are a synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but they are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and of the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. The Philadelphian church is great. And to encourage them to keep going, to encourage them to go into the next year that has new content and new challenges, Jesus gives them three promises. Promise number one is that their enemies will fall at their feet. Now, Christianity started kind of as an offshoot of Judaism. That's just sort of a historical fact here. Now, this means that Jews were both the most common converts, but also the biggest objectors to early Christianity. And we know that there was a Jewish synagogue in Philadelphia. And we also know from our friend Ignatius that there was conflict between the Christians and Jews there. Ignatius actually writes, if anyone preaches the Jewish law to you, listen not to him. Just really blunt, don't listen to them. So, we can see that there is there's conflict between Jews and Christians in this city. And Jesus here says that because the Jews haven't recognized him as the fulfillment of Judaism, that they're actually no longer true Jews. However, one day they will be forced to recognize that the claims of the Christians are right. But when slash did this happen? Did they fall at the Philadelphian church's feet? And is this promise true for us? Those are my questions as I read this. I actually want to jump us to a different part of the Bible. Philippians 2, verses 10 to 11, where we are told that a time is coming where at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, there is a time where every single person, both friends and enemies of God, are going to be forced to recognize who the true Lord is. This will be a really fantastic moment for us who believe, but a terrifying moment for those who don't. And Jesus promises the church in Philadelphia, but he also promises us that if we persevere in our faith, we will get to be in that moment with absolute joy. However, I think that this comes along with a challenge. Because if we want our loved ones to also have joy on their faces, we need them to know that Jesus is Lord as well. Now, how can we do that? Here at church, for the past month, we've been pushing this book. It's called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. This is a really helpful book about how to share the gospel. And this coming month at church, we're recommending you buy this book, which is Seven Reasons to Reconsider Christianity. This is the content. This is why Christianity is worth following, and this is how to share it. The reason we push books like this at church is because these are excellent resources to help you with your personal evangelism. 
They're good resources to help you talk to those that you love so that one day they can have joy on their faces as they declare that Jesus is Lord. So my recommendation tonight is get a copy of one of these. I know we're selling these at the back of the church for $10. These you can find on Kurong or find someone in the church who owns one. If you give me like one more week, I'll finish it and I can lend it to you. I would really recommend these two as really helpful resources. Another way to be evangelistic, another way to help those that you love come to know Jesus is by inviting them to one of the events that we have coming up in the next little while. Because Christmas is actually one of the easiest times to invite people to events. On, Sunday, on Saturday, sorry, the 11th, we have our Christmas carnival. If you know anyone with kids, this event is easy, fun, not in your face, easy to invite them to. They'll enter a church building, they'll feel comfortable doing so, and they'll see why we celebrate Christmas and hopefully have a good time while doing it. On Sunday 19th, we're running our carols in the car park at the evening service. Youth, young adults in particular, this is a great chance to invite your friends to what should just be a really excellent evening of singing carols, which is all about how Jesus came into the world. On Friday the 24th, And on Saturday the 25th is our Christmas Eve and Christmas Day services. If your friends know that you're a Christian, they're basically expecting you to invite them along to these, so don't disappoint them, please. Now, was this announcement time or was this the sermon? Nobody knows. I'm sorry. But the reason we run these events at church is not because events save people. They don't. We know that. But these events help you facilitate your personal evangelism. They help you step out of your comfort zone. They help you have content to talk to your friends about off the back of one of these events. And so what I really ask is that you would use these opportunities. Use one of the opportunities that we've put time in in for the next month to help one of your friends know Jesus a little bit better. Let's jump to promise number two. God will protect them in their hour of trial. Now, this is by far the hardest of the three promises to understand. Um, God says he is sending a period of trial on the whole earth. But the Philadelphian church is going to be protected from it, which is really great news for them. The next 200 years after the writing of this letter, the Romans would do all types of persecutions against Christianity. And the Roman world was the known world at the time. So it's entirely possible that one of these periods of persecution instigated by one of these Roman emperors is the time that Jesus is talking about here. And I believe that he therefore protected his church in Philadelphia from that time. However, some other people suggest that this period of trial, this uh, this hour of trial, is actually still coming and that this promise relates to all of us as Christians, not just the Philadelphians. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have a complete answer to this one. I'm happy to admit when there are bits of Scripture I don't fully understand, but at least let me give you an overarching principle here. This is the principle. Those that cling to God's commands, He will protect their faith through whatever trial may come. Here's the fact, here's the reality. Life is going to throw you, personally, some pretty serious trials. And you may doubt your faith in that time. And you know what? It's hard not to doubt your faith in that time. But God has some promises for you in that season of trial. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 10.13. Another 1 Corinthians reference. We just can't get out of it at youth. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. 
he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God promises to give you the support you need. That might be a person, a friend, a partner who comes alongside at the right time. It might be that tiny little internal voice that tells you to trust the past decisions and faith of your past self, even when your new present reality is really, really hard. Whatever season you are in right now, God is promising his support. And my encouragement to you is to not let go of God, but to cling to him and to cling to his word. Now, this is really, really easy to say from the pulpit. I know that. You know that. But it is the best biblical advice I can give on this topic right now. And the next promise, promise number three, shows us why we would really want to cling to Jesus and cling to that faith even in hours of trial. Because promise number three is that they will never be excluded from God's presence. Jesus says he's coming back soon, so please continue to persevere. And to the one who perseveres in their faith, he will make them a pillar in the temple of God. Now, I don't know about you, but the thought of being a stone pillar isn't super appealing to me at all. However, it's not saying that. It's not to be taken literally. Instead, what it's trying to say is that to the believer who overcomes, they will be permanently in the presence of God. Not only will we be permanently in the presence of God, a pillar in his temple, Jesus himself will write three things on you. The name of God, the name of the city of God, and Jesus' new name. Now, we're going to need an example of this. So, sorry people in the live stream. I'll be back with you in a moment. Chammers. No, no, you're just going to write God on my arm. <laughs> yeah, the next word is Jerusalem, so it's pretty hard. Emily, you know how to spell. <laughs> well, that's the neatest handwriting in the world. Do I have a volunteer who wants to write Jesus on my arm? Yeah. Um, where's left? <laughs> Hello, people on the live stream. I'm back. Now, what do these names represent? This is the question we're now going to ask. The reason God's name is going to be written on people is because this shows that we are owned by God, which is, I think, a really exciting thing. The reason... Why did you write it upside down? The reason Jerusalem is written on our arms is because it shows that we are citizens of the new Jerusalem, shows that we are citizens of heaven. This is basically your passport. And the reason Jesus, well, specifically, Jesus' new name is written on our arms is because it shows the lordship of Jesus in the new creations. Now, the people in Philadelphia would actually appreciate this reference to the new name of Jesus more than most people. You remember how I said the earthquake that Philadelphia often suffered was going to come back in the sermon? This is the bit where it comes back in. You see, Philadelphia got hit by earthquakes a lot, and several times they got government money to rebuild. And every time the government gave them money to rebuild their city after it was destroyed by an earthquake, they actually renamed the city in honour of the person who gave them the money. And so twice they were renamed. Once to Neo-Caesarea and once to Flavia. Now, to rename something is to give honour to the thing you are naming yourself after. And to have the name of something written on you is to also honour that thing. And so to have the new name of Jesus written on you is a double honour. And the Philadelphians are being promised this. And this promise applies to us as well. This honour applies to us as well. 
This is what we're aiming for. Not in blue, not just a one arm, but this is what we're aiming for to show clearly that we belong to Jesus Christ, clearly and publicly marked as his followers. Now we're going to move into exhortation, the very last bit of the letter. Here's what it says. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now you see, this letter closes with quite a familiar appeal to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. The promises given to the Philadelphian church and the challenge to continue to be faithful was God's word to this church at that specific time. However, it's also God's word to us tonight. Jesus tells us all to keep going and to not let go. Did you hear the Spirit saying that to you tonight? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you wrote these words to the church in Philadelphia, that they were faithful followers of you. And I pray right now that we too can be like that church. We can endure any hardship thrown our way and not deny your word. Thank you for the promises you gave them, and I ask that we would be able to claim them too. In the name of Jesus, amen.